Greetings. Welcome to Mind Matters News. I'm your capable host, Robert J. Marks. Today, we're going to discuss how algorithms can either sharpen or derail services. Specifically, we're going to talk about the practice of medicine. Algorithms, if you're not familiar, are step-by-step procedures for accomplishing something. When you bake a cake, For example, you have the input to the algorithm, which is all the ingredients, and then you have a step-by-step procedure. Put the cake mix in the batter, add some milk, some eggs possibly, uh, beat it, preheat the oven, cook for a certain amount of time, et cetera, et cetera, and you end up with a cake. So recipes are algorithms. In fact, I I like to think that algorithms are indeed recipes. I think it, it probably goes both ways. Uh, Google driving instructions are algorithms. When I'm told to go to your place and I'm supposed to go two miles on the freeway, turn left at the 7-Eleven, go a couple blocks, turn right on Oriole Street, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So those are step-by-step procedures to get me from point A to point B. Now, computers and AI are restricted to be algorithmic. In other words, Computers can only do things which are algorithmic. Every computer follows a step-by-step procedure for doing something. If something is non-algorithmic, it is not computable. And one of the things that we've shown at the Bradley Center is that creativity, nuance, and insight are human characteristics that are non-algorithmic. You cannot write a computer program to do them. Creativity, nuance, and insight. And if you remove creativity, nuance, and insight and and other criteria from making decisions, you're really stifling the degree to which you can interact. We're going to talk about how algorithms stifle and also enhance the practice of medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Hurley. Dr. Hurley is a medical doctor who is board certified in anesthesiology and pain medicine. Dr. Hurley, welcome back. Thank you, Robert. You know, one of the things that we were talking about offline is algorithms and medical procedures and the fact that a surgeon can come up with a new way of doing something and they can patent it. That's really astonishing. So if a a surgeon that you works with uses a procedure that's patented by somebody else, does he have to pay the person that originated and owns that patent for the right to use that procedure? Do you know? No, I I don't. I'm I'm not an expert in this, but... um... Of those physicians that I have known that have developed a technique or a device, uh, they've usually partnered with uh, companies that actually may produce or manufacture that. And the two of them together will get a patent either on that procedure or the type of procedure or the device itself. You know, I have a personal story. I was trying to quit coffee, but every time I quit, I started to get headaches. And then I got a hold of some bad calamari. And that bad calamari put me in bed for about three days, uh, just just terrible and just agonizing, agonizing pain and gastral discomfort. Uh, when I finally recovered, I thought, you know, I probably went through my headache withdrawal during my during my time when I was out with this food poisoning from the bad calamari. And somebody told me about patentability, and I thought, you know, I could have patented this to, for people that want to uh, want to recover from uh, from addiction to coffee. But of course, it would involve bad calamari. But I'm sure that there's ways that they can induce uh, induce this sort of coma and distraction. And I think they use this in drug recovery sometimes, don't they? Yeah, it's really interesting for severe depression now for different types of pain states. They're actually using uh, infusion of ketamine, which is 
its sister drug is LSD, and ketamine is a dissociative agent that actually seems to help depression. It's not such a strong deal in terms of uh, uh, abuse or addiction, but it has really been uh, successful in the treatment of depression. Okay, so do they knock you out for that, or they put you it's in a, sleep they, for you know, they don't have to give you an anesthetic dose. It's, a, it's an infusion in which you are awake. Uh, you're not dissociated, but the, there's, and the infusion rights, you couldn't do anesthesia. You can actually use the drug for anesthesia. I used to use it all the time, but you got to use it a higher dose. It's not necessary to uh, use high doses in order to, to get this response that you're looking for. I see. Okay. Yep. Well, t- speaking of procedures, uh, you've mentioned to me about the onslaught of technology in your field. And right. uh, could, could you comment on that? One of the things you mentioned was a, a suture device for, for, deep, for deep wounds. The spine surgery that I do is predominantly uh, implanting spinal cord stimulators. And basically, it's two uh, very sophisticated wires that are put into the epidural space. It's tunneled up into the mid portion of the spine. And when you turn it on, patients feel tingles in their lower back and legs. And for some patients, that is excellent pain relief but you don't even have to feel the stimulation or to get relief. The biggest problem we had with this is that active patients and even non-active patients, if they fell or whatever, the leads would move. They would either fall down or to the right or to the left. And, and so uh, then you'd have to operate on them again and, and fix it. So I didn't have as much trouble as other people did, but I still had some what we call uh, migration of the lead. And, and so there was a group of, uh, I don't even know who they were, that developed a, a, a product called Fixate. And it basically, it's a device that allows you to suture a wire deep into, the, deep into a wound, and you don't even have to get your fingers down into it. It's just all designed with a way that it was done. And then when you pull up on it and tighten it up, it would cinch it down. And, and it, it's amazing. Once a lot of people started using this, the lead migration went way down and reoperations went way down. So it's just a simple device that's available to anybody that wants to use it. That's interesting. So are there other technological advances? I I understand that robotics is now being used for a lot of operations. And all of this is going to be algorithmic. You have to go in and the physician uh, either uses it as a a tool or if it's unmanned, it it does it on its own. Exactly right. Yeah. So the robotic... uh, Of course, I'm not as familiar as a lot of other people are, but we're using robotics in treatment of some guys are using it for knee replacement, uh, for any abdominal or pelvic surgery. Um, And the list is just keeps increasing daily. Uh, But the advantage is, is that you don't have to have large wounds. Uh, You can do everything through a small uh, incision. Uh, And so recovery time is better. Uh, and, and overall, the results have been just as good, if, if not better. That's, that's interesting. So what is the history of, I, I, guess, I, I guess technology has always been a part of medicine, but in terms of AI and some of this high technology, that's, that's a recent development, isn't it? That's true. Okay. Let's talk about algorithms in other places. So we have algorithms in the practice of medicine. And I think that's one of the reasons that we have nurse practitioners today. When I was a boy, we didn't have nurse practitioners. You you went to the doctor. But nurse practitioners kind, kind of take care of, as I understand, the low-level medical diagnosis that can be taken care of through algorithms. You come in, you got a 
you got a fever, you got a, you got a temperature and they probably say you got flu and you should take such and such medication. And this is pretty pro forma. And that's what the nurse practitioners are supposed to do. And then if they're outside of their silo of expertise, they, they put you and they refer you to a specialist who can take care of you. I, I use a nurse practitioner and I, I really appreciate that she knows her limit of expertise and I can go to her for, you know, normal things, but if it goes outside of her silo of expertise, she can refer me to other, uh, other specialists. So nurse practitioners are followers of algorithms in terms of what they do. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is the, the application of algorithms, not necessarily in, in the practice of medicine, but in the constraints which are put on to medicine by insurance companies and stuff. Could, could you talk to that? I can. So let me first, um, by the way, uh, a nurse practitioner who refers a patient because they're not sure is, I agree with you. I think that's, you, you appreciate that about her. Yes. You should also appreciate that about your own physician as well. I refer patients when I, when my, when I get out of my expertise, I don't treat somebody's diabetes. I don't treat their hypertension. I don't treat their stroke. I, I make sure that I get that patient into the right position to take care of that. Good. But if you look at algorithms, medical algorithms are, a, it's, it's a visual roadmap to help guide you in your decision making. Okay. And, and that, that helps you plan for your, and evaluate your care. It's to help to remove the uncertainty. Okay. It makes the decision making uh, much more accurate and it's developed by physicians for either physicians or other healthcare providers. It's evidence-based and it's data-driven. Now, algorithms by health insurance companies, they use algorithms for prior authorizations to determine the medical necessity for hospital admissions, prescriptions, surgeries, and procedures. So this really constrains your practice, doesn't it? Yeah, because their prior authorization purportedly is to reduce healthcare costs, but they claim to save money by denying health services that are considered to be experimental or unnecessary, even if that care or drug or procedure is FDA approved or approved by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Is that right? You know, I, w- I was talking to a friend that is the his first name is John. I forget his I forget his last name, but he has a startup of a new service for like senior people that can monitor old people in their houses and just make sure that they're that they're okay. They're moving around, and then there's a lot of data mining which comes from that. Where how many times they go to the restroom, for example, uh, how long they sleep, and you, you can monitor all of this from their technology. But he was saying that his big hurdle was to get approval by Medicare and Medicaid. He said, this is the main hurdle that needs uh, jumping in approving new medicine and procedures. And he, he also said, and I, I want to check your viewpoint on this, that the insurance companies would usually become a part of it and agree to cover this cost if Medicare and Medicaid did that. But you're saying that's not necessarily the true. Is that right? The Center for Medicare and Medicaid, they, they can approve payment for anything that they think is, uh, uh, they're not going to approve something that's not FDA approved. Okay. In other words, if, if it's a drug, if it's a procedure, then there are all kinds of things that they have to do to get that done. 
But even then, many procedures and devices have to be FDA approved, okay? But insurance companies, private insurance companies, they don't have, just because Medicare does it, they don't, they're not obligated to do that, okay? Uh, and so they're, a lot of times, they are actually behind the eight ball. They make, that they, uh, they, they have other, other agendas or uh, a perfect example is a new drug that comes out that may have a strong indication FDA approved. Uh, but before I can write a prescription for that, I've got to use all the old drugs that uh, were never uh, approved for that particular diagnosis or problem. Uh, but we knew that if you used them off-label, the patients got better. And then if they failed those, then you could order this new drug that might cost 100 times more than the old drugs. Okay. I see. Okay. So the drug companies come in and uh, they, probably, they, they probably want to have everything approved by insurance. And then the insurance company come in and they make all the rules. To what degree do the drug companies stifle your practice of medicine? Well, to give you an idea, and it's just recently in the last three years, we've seen a number of pharmaceutical companies produce drugs that are, that are called CGRP uh, inhibitors, which are known to be fantastic drugs for migraine. And these drugs are given uh, intramuscularly and they last about two months. And it's been tremendous in terms of relief of patients who suffer from migraine. In order to get this approved, you got to have 15 migraine attacks per month before they, they'll uh, uh, approve that drug. <laughs> really? And, 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 and now that number may have gone down, and I don't want to, I shouldn't probably say, give you an ex exact number. But there is a threshold. That's the, the, uh, the threshold is so high and it's so hard and it takes a lot of time. And a lot of times the nurses or physicians have to go to their insurance companies to get this approved. And I have the same problem I have with the things that I do, but that, that those issues are that way. And, um, uh, and so it, it is tough. Now, over time, those drugs will become cheaper and the insurance companies will use them and then they'll be fighting something else, you know? I see. So it seems to me that in the practice of medicine, we talked about algorithms and nuance and insight and things, that, things of that sort. It seems that if, with a physician, you have this nuance, you have this insight into patients, and that you should have this flexibility to prescribe what you think is appropriate. Yet I kind of get the sense that insurance companies kind of stifle that creativity and your practice, if you will, in medicine. Do you agree? I do. I totally agree. So in, in other words, in, in pain medicine, I'm an interventional pain physician. So I do agree that we should approach the patient, certainly from a conservative standpoint, you shouldn't go into the most expensive treatment modalities from day one. You got to get to know the patient. They got to have course. some trust in you and all that stuff. But if ultimately, uh, if I have a patient with mechanical back pain, uh, they're in their 50s or 60s, they've got enlarged uh, facet joints or the, the small joints in the lower back. And when they move a certain way, it pinches them and it causes them severe pain. And, and uh, they've had, they've been on uh, over-the-counter medications such as Tylenol or ibuprofen or, or naproxen. Uh, they've done some exercises at home. It didn't help. Maybe they've even had physical therapy or chiropractic manipulation, or maybe they've had acupuncture. They've had all kinds of conservative care. Ultimately, I may decide that what I want to do is a procedure called median branch blocks or facet nerve injections where we actually anesthetize the joint to see if their function and pain improves. Now, once I request that, I have to send all of my notes, 
all of my imaging, everything to the insurance company. And we might hear back from them in a week. So when a patient comes in and they expect care at that particular time, I can't even offer it to them because uh, it has to be uh, approved. And they'll ask, they ask 15 different questions that my nurse will fill out electronically. Okay. And, but if she misses one, just one, uh, or she doesn't dot the I across the T, it gets denied. And, and they have, the insurance companies have people who are not experts. They're not nurses. They're not even medical assistants. They are people who have been trained to read notes and then look for reasons to deny it. Well, this is the whole point, right? They're following fixed, rigid algorithms, which do yeah. not allow the flexibility that you need. Right. And, and, the, and these, these companies that do this have just blossomed with managed Medicare, okay? So managed Medicare is essentially, everybody thinks managed Medicare is like standard, standard Medicare. That's false. Standard Medicare, you, had, you have standard Medicare, but then you have to pay for your supplement. Yes. Okay, which is 20% of the care. Well, that, sometimes that costs more than the uh, standard Medicare. Well, managed Medicare gets rid of all that. It's just one fee. And so uh, if an insurance company like Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or whatever is going to be involved in that, they can make money if they deny services or postpone them. Uh, the algorithms that are set up are saying, well, the reason we have these algorithms are to get rid of unnecessary procedures, okay? But it's really interesting of the number of case procedures that I want to do, and then I go to appeal. Probably they don't reject more than maybe two or three initially, but within a month, 100% of them are approved over time. Really? Okay. So, yes. so they're reasonable, uh, but you really, you really have to go uh, to battle with them. How much time right. do you spend battling the insurance companies? So not all insurance companies require author, prior authorizations, but all managed Medicare does, and almost all primary insurance does, but standard Medicare does not. So if you have standard Medicare with a supplement, there's no pre-authorization. So what I, what I say and what you agree to is, is the type of care you're going to get. But people who sign up for managed Medicare are not aware that they're going to be plagued with pre-authorizations for that year that they have that insurance. You know, the funny thing is uh, I go in for procedures every once in a while and I'm giving an estimate of what the insurance company will pay. And invariably, almost 100%, I get a bill for extra money. In other words, the the medical doctor doesn't know how much the insurance company will pay. They guess, or maybe they have a standard reimbursement that they quote me, but it's never, it's, it never seems to be enough. On one occasion, I did get a check back that I paid too much, but that was a rarity. And that, that seems to me to be frustrating and a very bad algorithm if you can't decide a priori beforehand what a procedure is going to cost. Absolutely. And you don't see that in... In medicine, if there was no insurance and everybody paid cash, you'd have the prices written on the outside on the billboard. <laughs> you know, I've heard that and wondering, so the insurance companies are, the algorithms that they use, let me use the word brittle. You can't crack them. You can't go outside of them. And that certainly must be frustrating. On, on the other hand, we know that we need algorithms because there needs to be some sort of constraint in terms of uh, containing cost. So, Richard, how can it be fixed? 
So the, one, the thing that the state of Texas came up with in the last legislative session was the golden rule. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. No. But essentially what they, they got passed was if a physician had six months of care in which maybe they were a proceduralist or whatever it was, but and all of virtually 90% of the requested authorizations were passed, then they would get a gold card, which will allow them to then, oh. for, the next, for the next six months, they can go ahead and schedule the procedure without getting authorization. Now, that's just coming about now. In other words, the, it's, it was supposed to have happened by, um, I think, the beginning of the year. But interestingly enough, insurance companies have trying to tack on different rules, okay? So it's still in, it still hasn't been a decision. But that was something that uh, the Texas legislature came up with was the golden rule. In other words, if they look at you over your past six months and everything you did, even though you might have done some appeals, if your appeals were approved, then we will grant you a six month reprieve from from pre-authorizations. That's, I, you know, it's one thing or another. Uh, I, I disagree, but I understand why pre-authorizations are because they're always dishonest providers who do things, you know, they'll, they'll schedule procedures that are not indicated or they'll do too many of them um, or they'll do it for the wrong reason, you know? Wow. Now, when you when you or your assistants or your nurse uh, talks to the insurance companies, I guess one of the things that must be frustrating to you, and you mentioned this, is that you as a physician are arguing with somebody who is trying to follow a strict algorithm, but which has no medical experience. Correct. And they are still constrained to following their algorithm, yet, yet you say that most of your controversies are concluded in a happy way. So how do they get around the algorithms? Are you given exemptions from the algorithm or what? Well, hopefully that's going to happen. In other words, um, maybe one day I'll have a gold card. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, 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 doubt, I doubt that interventional pain physicians, because the, the, the problem with chronic pain is, is that everybody's going to be a patient at, at some time or another. You will be, I will be, you'll have some. Now, how you cope with it is obviously different. Everybody copes with it differently. But authorizations for uh, certain medications are like those, those CGRP inhibitors that I was telling you for migraine. Well, those drugs cost $600 a month. Okay. And you think about how many millions of patients who have that. And you just dump that on the system, uh, you know, insurances would really struggle with that. And I understand that as well. Maybe it's the cost of drugs. Maybe it's all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that's a real good answer. But uh, to actually streamline this differently would be better. But, but the biggest problem I have is when I do a pre-authorization, it gets rejected. And then I go to appeal and I go back and review my notes. And then I talked to the doctor there. The reason I win is because he didn't read. They didn't read all the notes. Oh. They didn't look at the, they didn't look at the MRI report. They didn't. You know what I mean? It yes. was They just missed it. And, they, and, they, and so I, I always ask him, why do you ask for us to send all the notes on the patient when you don't read them? I mean, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Oh, my gosh. You know, the, the gold card, the more I think about it the better idea it is. I like the mm -hmm. idea of vetting physicians to give them more flexibility in what they do. Another question I have, what is the difference between the different insurance companies? They all have this brittle sort of algorithmic 
criteria that they impose on the practice of medicine. Are there some which are better than other ones? You can mention names or not mention names. That's uh, up to you. I'm not the expert in that, so I can't tell you. Uh, we have less problems with, if you have standard Medicare, I would, if people can afford standard Medicare with a supplement uh, when they get Medicare age, I just encourage them to go that route. Because even though you're healthy and even though you may not have used a lot of healthcare, you don't know what the future is going to bring. And uh, so you'll, even though you may be paying more, that's, uh, that's the way I would go. Managed healthcare changes. So what I mean by that is Blue Cross and Blue Shield may have this criteria to do median branch blocks on a patient this year, but next year they're going to change it. Really? So the rules keep changing? The, oh, the rules change on the first of the year. They publish it. You might get to see it. You might not. And then all of a sudden you <laughs> haven't met that criteria, so it gets denied. How do you play the game without knowing the rules? Well, yeah, it's, it's just really funny. You get denials, and then all of a sudden you find out what the new rule is, and then you start uh, adjusting your uh, notes so that, that, that fits their criteria. Those are kinds of things that we as physicians get really frustrated with. Uh, and those rules uh, seem to be very uh, quite arbitrary. And they're based on what they perceive as abuse, you know, where, sure, uh, okay, all of a sudden this, this procedure is going way up. And is there any reason for it? Well, there may not be, and it may be abuse, but uh, you're penalizing everybody else and all the other patients that are involved by changing the rules and not letting us know. There are a number of different companies that give health care, you know, health insurance, if you will. Is there a monopoly happening uh, unsaid where the rules for all of these insurance companies are roughly the same? The reason I ask this is it seems that if there were true competition in, in the spirit of free enterprise, in the spirit of capitalism between the different health care insurance providers, that there would be a competition to give the best service, which would be a motivation to sharpen their algorithms to make them more user-friendly to the physician. When you're buying health insurance, I feel sorry for the layperson who doesn't know a lot about medicine and how healthcare is done because they, you basically you would think, well, I'm probably not going to buy the cheapest, but I'm certainly not going to buy the most expensive. Yeah. And uh, so I'm going to try to hit one in the middle of the road. If you ask the lay person in the United States what a pre-authorization is for healthcare, many patients uh, might know, but most people don't. And they don't ask that when they go and get their plan. But in answer to your question, all of the, all the managed care providers use other companies to develop these uh, uh, algorithms to decide whether a procedure is medically necessary or if it's experimental. Really? Okay. So they, they farm it out then. Right. And, and one of the largest companies is a company called Evacor. They manage 100 million Medicare Advantage patients. Holy. 100 million. What, how do you spell that name, Evacor? Evacor, E-V-I-C-O-R-E. Evacor. Okay. okay, thank you. Yeah, so I usually have to talk to uh, Evacor. And by the way, I have the right under the state of Texas, I have the right to talk to a peer of my own. So in other words... If I call and my nurse sets up a, an appeal, uh, she'll say, now, Dr. Hurley does want a pain physician, uh, board certified, uh, who, who he'll talk to. And, they, and they, by law, they have to get that. I don't know if they have to be board certified, but they have to, you have to have a, in other words, I don't have to argue in front of an oncologist or, you know, or a, a primary care. Somebody it's, who, it's peer review, if you will. Right. It's a peer review. You have to have peer review in order to do that. And, and that can't change. If that, if that, if that ever changes, I'm, uh, it's time for me to retire. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. You know, you mentioned previously, and I thought this was interesting, if we didn't have insurance, the price of every procedure of every medicine would be printed uh, on the bottle. Absolutely. And do you think that the use of insurance would increase this price? So there's kind of an implicit price on everything, according to what insurance provider you have. Um, do you think that this price is going to be higher or lower if we didn't have insurance? Anytime the federal government gets into anything, the price goes up. You know that as yes. well as I okay. do. Okay. So you, they get into uh, whatever it is they do, the price goes through the roof. And, and that's because you, you're very inefficient if you run anything from Washington, D.C., as opposed to doing something local. The state can do things cheaper than the federal government can do, and the local uh, governments can do uh, things cheaper than that. A private institution uh, like Baylor or whatever. In other words, there are ways to do things. But if the federal government gets involved, whether it is in medicine, whether it's in construction, whether it's in military, whatever it is, the price goes through the roof. I, a perfect example that I had was I had some properties down in Belton during Katrina and people who had, were looking for places to live, they came up and we had a place for them. Well, you know, I, I, I put up this family for that and, and I'd been renting, my place had been renting for $800 a month before they came. And then we moved them in and the government paid me 1250. <laughs> really? Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, okay. so, I mean, I didn't ask them. They said, that's what we paid for a three bedroom, one bath house. So, okay. All right. Well, I didn't argue. I just took it, you know? Yeah, it strikes me that in order to improve insurance, I do like the idea of free enterprise. I'm a, I'm a big believer in it. I do believe that the FDA has to stay in the mix. I mean, what was that? What was that drug that caused uh, birth defects that a number of decades ago? That, oh, you're talking. Well, it was a German drug for sleep. It's called thalidomide. Yeah, thalidomide, and it caused all of these birth defects. And to our credit, the FDA didn't approve it, so all of those birth defects occurred in other countries that had the slippery slope that allowed it to be approved prematurely. Um, so I, I like the idea of the FDA in terms of clearing stuff, but it seems to me that we really don't have free enterprise among the insurance companies from the small amount I know. And I do like the idea that the state has some control over it. Your gold ticket, for example, was at the state level. I'm wondering if if some of these some of these different insurances were localized more and separated like the divestiture of the of the bell systems labs where they broke up the company that maybe maybe we would get a better better deal oh yeah I, uh, well the drug that we the drugs that we use in the united states cost x dollars the same drug in canada costs 75 percent less because they have one payer, and that's the Canadian uh, healthcare system. They buy all the drugs and then dispense them out. You know. Oh, so that okay. So that's a vote for socialism. It is. It is, and I'm I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is that was there any reason why two years ago the price of insulin went, you know, doubled and tripled and quadrupled? You know, I mean, um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that information. But uh, then, if the federal government goes in and says, okay, you can sell insulin, but you can only sell it for thirty-five dollars. Um, a vial, okay. How many people are going to play with that? I don't know. I don't know. It, it, I don't have the answers in terms of the cost and how to control it. All I know is everybody wants uh, American healthcare, <laughs> and they come here in droves uh, to to get it. 
It's still the best. Yes, it's still it's still the best, and uh, and it will always. I think it will always will be as long as we do it. And it, it's not truly private. Okay, it's there's a mixture of the federal government, state government, uh, private enterprise, all that other stuff. Uh, and so I, I I like the drugs that I take, and I like the facts that the, my pharmacists provide them. But um, uh, I, how to handle the costs are not there. But algorithms uh, th- that are involved in healthcare to help patients get better, whether in surgery or on the floor, are designed by physicians to help other physicians or providers to do things. And the algorithms for insurance companies are done differently. So, yeah, that, so that's another interesting question. This Evacor, uh, do you know what degree that they employ physicians to set up these policies? I have no idea, but they must have hundreds, if not thousands of physicians that work either part-time but please don't give me that job. I don't want to have to answer the phone and listen to guys about uh, appeals. Well, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. Job. Yeah, the interesting thing is probably all those medical doctors make these recommendations, and it's eventually decided by a bunch of guys with MBAs. It may be true. Yeah, that's that That would be my hunch. Okay. Any final words, Richard? No, I, 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 I'm glad we had a chance to at least talk about this. I doubt that the public is aware of the algorithms that uh, – and that are involved in uh, pre-authorization of patients for procedures or, or medications. Frequently, they blame the physician. Okay, why are you not getting this done? Why am I having to wait? They don't realize that the hang-up is not uh, at the office where you see your physician, but it's at, uh, it's in computers and uh, uh, insurance companies that are, uh, actually want to say and whether you can have that care or not. And if that was something that everybody knew, uh, then my suggestion for people who are buying health insurance is how much pre-authorization is this product going to have? And I might run away from it, you know? I see. Okay. How, how would you find that out though? You can always ask. Always ask. Always, always ask. Always ask. Is, is, is a procedure, do I have to have pre-authorization to be admitted to the hospital? Do I have to have pre- pre-authorization for, for this type of surgery? You know, all those things. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Richard, this has been a, a fascinating conversation, fascinating chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Our guest today is uh, has been Dr. Richard Hurley. Dr. Hurley is a medical doctor who is board certified in anesthesiology and pain medicine. So until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.